Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Guy Adami and Yo. Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. Welcome, people. Apparently, there's something called, who's this Barry character and why does he have a, It doesn't sound, I mean, I don't know Barry. I'm sure he's lovely, but it doesn't sound like he should have a boot camp. Maybe he should have like a, I don't know, not a boot camp. Liz, That's Guy wrong. is in this mode. Uh, he's just doxing people. He's letting everybody know what everyone's doing when they shouldn't be doing. I guess, yeah. I, I, there's something called- Busted that I go to Barry's boot camp. I love me some Barry's. It's a HIT workout. You know what HIT stands for? Yeah. High intensity High interval training. training. Guy has been known to do that every once in a while. All right, guys, we got a lot to cover in a short uh, amount of time. Guy and I had a great conversation with Edward Talmer Guerra. He's the founding managing partner and CEO of NuVest. They're a first-of-its-kind platform. They're creating index funds for private market investments. Very interesting conversation, shedding a lot of light on some of the things that we talk about here, just the kind of some of the differentials that we see between public markets and private markets and how to get uh, wide exposure to them. So tune in for our conversation with Edward after we're done here. Guys, let's talk about it. It was a down week in the S&P 500 guy. And as you like to say, when the market is just screaming green or like you ask the question, why was the market up? And the answer is always because it was open. It was open last week, but it was down on the week guy. Talk to us yeah. a little bit about that. There were a lot of, listen, a lot of things definitely we want to bookmark, but I thought the reversal on Friday was pretty noteworthy. We've seen over the last 18 months or so, I would say 85 to 90% of the Fridays, the market just does this levitation, especially in the last couple hours of the day, for no real reason that I could ascertain. Over the last month or so, we've seen a couple Fridays where the market actually reverses and sells off. So that's something new. And again, 
The other thing I took from last week, and Elizabeth, I'm sure has thoughts on this, is the now significant steepening again of the yield curve. And I think that's something that people are going to start to talk about. And quite frankly, I think one of the reasons we saw some unrest in the market last week is because participants are finally starting to connect the dots between global interest rates, global yield curves, and where equity markets should be. Obviously, the steepening in the yield curve is something that I watch obsessively. We're at 72 basis points now, and we had been hovering around 100 basis points for a long time. I think all three of us knew that at some point it would have to right itself, and that's usually the part that is really painful for equity markets. So far, we haven't seen deep pain in equity markets, but to your point, Guy, I think if you look around the globe, some of the things that at least U.S. investors are starting to wake up to is that it turns out we are not the only ones with a central bank bank issue. We are not the only ones with an inflation issue. And now you've got yields across the globe rising. You've got steepening yield curves happening all over the place, which wreaks havoc on just basically valuations everywhere. So whether it's something where we just have to get used to a new normal, or if it's something where we have to reset all valuations, I think we probably need to do more of a reset. Now, depending on how hard of a reset it is, that's what will decide how much pain we go through. But I do think that we need a reset probably across the globe in valuations. It's funny, when you think about the data, Guy, you just talked about that reversal on Friday. Originally, equity investors liked the data. This is the July jobs report. We saw the unemployment rate, though, go to 3.5%, 70-year low. And there's still wage inflation. So the point is, and then we get this morning, we get this Fed Governor Bauman or over the weekend suggesting that they see or she sees more rate hikes to battle inflation. It's just the jobs picture doesn't make it any easier for the Fed right now. And it's interesting because she specifically said more rate hikes to get the inflation down to the 2% target. And we spent some time last week talking about that, whether we think the Fed signals that they're okay at readjusting that higher. It doesn't seem from some of the Fed speak guy that they are. And so that's the thing that continues, I think, to weigh a little bit on equities here. Because if we were to see, as you've been calling for a reacceleration inflation, that just means that rates are going to go higher. They're going to stay higher for longer. And sooner or later, that lag effect, right, that we've been talking about that 12 to kind of 18 months, we're going to be solidly Liz in that sweet spot. So guys, talk to me a little bit about that, because some of the readings over the weekend and some of the commentary was that we do have a weakening in demand in the job growth. Wage inflation stays high, but unemployment rate goes lower, Guy. It seems like a pretty messy picture on the jobs front. It's interesting. I think we're in the period of time now into September, into Jackson Hole, where you're going to start to get these conflicting Fed officials, Fed governors coming out and saying things. And there's going to be, I think, for every Fed official that comes out and says they see continued rate hikes, you're going to get one or two that says, you know what? time for a pause, look for rate cuts in the first part of next year. And you actually got some of that over the weekend. So I think you're going to get a lot of these cross currents. But to your point about the lag effect, sometimes storms converge at the worst possible time and they find themselves on land exactly at the same time. And that's going to be, I think, in the form of the reacceleration of inflation, September, October, November, which will coincide with the lag effect that you just mentioned somewhere between 12 and 18 months. The numbers, the math lines up exactly like that. So if that lag effect kicks in and acceleration of inflation rears its ugly head at a time where you need neither, it's going to be challenging for the market. And that, But that's something we've been saying for a while. I think what's confused me specifically 
is the fact that the market might even know this, but it doesn't seem to want to acknowledge it and it sort of levitates prior. But as we know, things change quickly. Friday's a good example. That's anecdotal, I know, but it's a good example of how quickly things do turn. We're going to get CPI this week, right? And, and we know, we've talked about this a few times on all of our programs, that last month was when we passed the peak reading in base effects. So this will be the first reading where inflation had started to tick down last year. It could be more challenging because of that. Back to the jobs picture a little bit. If you look at the data that came in last week, we're almost back down to pre-pandemic jobs added numbers. So we're back to trend, regular readings. We never really dipped below them. And I think that's what the Fed wants. The Fed wants us to loosen, soften the labor market to below trend for a while so that we can get rid of some of this excess demand and the imbalances that are there. That hasn't occurred yet. The last thing I'll say, and I I think Adam Parker was the one who said this earlier this year, so shout out to Adam for this, but when we came into this year, everybody thought first half of this year is going to be really tough, second half is going to be better, right? And his take was, because everybody thinks that, it's probably going to be the opposite. And now here we are in a time where bears have capitulated, you're seeing all these different ratings and changes from strategists and and just big firms saying, you know what, we've raised our soft landing probability, we've lowered our recession probability. Now it's starting to feel like because everybody thinks there's going to be a soft landing, maybe that's the thing that won't happen anymore. Yeah, it is remarkable how many strategists, economists have pulled their 2023 first half 2024 recession outlooks. And I got to tell you, that is signaling something to me that we're probably way, way too complacent about those lag effects um, and the risks. And the most important thing to me that I saw on Friday afternoon was Apple opened down after its you know relatively disappointing earnings. And it wasn't a bad quarter for, by any means, but they're just not putting up the sort of growth that would justify the multiple that a $3 trillion market cap company that's growing earnings and sales, mid to high single digits, in my opinion, should be afforded. The stock opened down a few percent, and then at 2 p.m., it dropped a percent and a half in the late in the afternoon. When you see that sort of behavior, okay, it's a summer Friday, closes on the low. I think that's important, but I think it's also important to remember that we had Carter on last week. We were talking about what looked like a near-perfect 45-degree angle from its January 20. 23 lows. Okay. So this is going back seven months or so to where it was at its highs just a couple of weeks ago. It gained 60%. Okay. To a $3.1 trillion market cap company. Now it is down about eight and a quarter percent from there. Think about that. That's $250 billion in market cap just taking a little bit of the excess, a little bit of the froth of this move or so. And to me, you better continue to have rotation into some of those cyclical things that have seen money move into them, okay, as we've seen the relative underperformance of mega cap tech of late. But if those charts start to do the other ones, Apple's peers, what Apple just did, it firmly broke guy, that uptrend that has been in place. And you don't want to see the technicals start to deteriorate in some of the biggest market leaders, the things that have gotten you here and kept you here. Well, you're starting to without question. And Microsoft started that ball rolling, I think. And Microsoft, if you look at a chart, maybe we could put it in the show notes. I don't even know if that's allowed, but almost a textbook double top from the fall of 2021. The SMH, very similar in terms of that formation. Obviously, Apple b- blew through its prior all-time high from those levels in December, January 21, January, December 21, January 22. But now we've broken that uptrend line. Now, 
we've talked about this historically over the last you know six, seven, eight years. You've seen almost a fifty percent peak to trough declines in Apple. It's not like it's unprecedented to have a sell-off in the stock, and maybe we're on the precipice of one. If you're looking for a level, one sixty-one ish would be a 50% retracement of the low we made earlier this year, that sort of 125-ish low, and the recent all-time high that we saw. That would make sense. It's logical for it to go now. People say, oh my God, you know, you're talking negatively about Apple. How can you? Well, it's pretty easy because Dan just put out the fundamentals on the back of it, and it works both ways. You know, passive investing is great when you're long things and the market just levitates. As I mentioned on Fast Money last week, I think Apple is one of the top 15 holdings in 357 different ETFs. So when those things start going the other way, what works for Apple on the upside works for it on the downside as well. Yeah. And Liz, one of the things that we've been talking about when you talk about what would be the causes of a resurgence in inflation and Guy, you've been putting in our chat some of these stories about just these Russia and China exercises and the in near Alaska and us U.S. sending destroyers in the South China Post. You had a story here. Mainland China airs documentary signaling military preparation for Taiwan attack and willingness to sacrifice. It seems like there is a drumbeat. It just seems like the sort of thing that if you are a U.S. multinational and you've been scurrying away, diversify your supply chain after the pandemic and you saw what happened there, Liz, it really seems like companies like Apple Companies like Tesla will squarely be in the focus here because not only do they rely on Chinese labor, right, and, and just how they've oriented their supply chains, they rely on consumers. When you start to have nationalistic tendencies work into in countries like China, where they can really dictate who the winners and the losers are from their version of capitalism, that is a worrying sign. Now, I know Apple keeps talking about India and from a manufacturing standpoint, so they're trying to get investors to say, don't look here, look there. But this is going to take years to unwind. It's been okay for companies so far with inflation because they've had pricing power. They've been able to raise prices and they've been able to pass it all through. And that is now sticky. I think what we don't realize is that once a company raises prices and passes it through, those are pretty permanent until you hit the skids in some type of recession situation and they can lower prices again. As competition heats up, as pricing power goes away, or at least gets reduced for the rest of the year, because I think people are now hip to the idea that inflation is falling. So you can't really justify raising prices much further. Further, then companies start to struggle with that. I would remind everybody of what happened when Russia-Ukraine broke out. Before that all occurred, we hadn't worried about Russia as an issue in global oil supply. We hadn't worried about the supply of wheat. We hadn't talked about the breadbasket that was over there in Eastern Europe. And then very suddenly, we had commodity prices that rose because of supply shocks that occurred seemingly overnight, right? So this stuff can happen really fast. It can disrupt global supply really fast. To your point, Dan, this might be more of a labor disruption than an actual supply of stuff disruption. But if there's something that bleeds over into oil supply or into some type of shock that would ripple around the globe, it goes quickly and it's so fast that you can't catch it from an investment standpoint. And let me just echo some or just sort of amplify. People say the contra to the China-Taiwan situation is why would China do something like that? They have so many problems. Why do they want to thrust themselves into that situation? And that makes sense. Logically, that makes sense. It's funny about history. The United States was in uh, dire straits in the late 1920s, 1930s. And what basically helped get out of what was a prolonged period of economic weakness was World War II. So again, I, I don't want to make the corollary necessarily, but Sometimes that's exactly what countries need to kickstart their economies. But I guess my point is, 
all the signals are there. China is basically telling you what they're going to do. And the fact that the market is not acknowledging it whatsoever, or they seemingly think they have the bandwidth or the room or the time to get ahead of what could be a pretty quick happening. I just don't get it. And if you listen, I think it was the founder of SoftBank a week or so or two weeks ago talked about the potential catastrophic impacts to global markets if China were to do something in Taiwan. So it's not just me talking. It's not Dan or Elizabeth talking. It's all out there to read about. And it's not necessarily just one-sided reporting. These are people that obviously understand the situation and are just reading the tea leaves. It's interesting. And I don't know if you guys caught this morning, Tyson Foods, the big chicken producer is down, I think six, 7% in the pre-market here. Actually, it's down more than that. And they're talking about pricing pressure or the lack thereof, their ability to put through some of these costs. So it, it's just interesting to me, this is a chicken producer, a food producer. They're talking about tightening belts in households and, and the like here. Maybe this is some of the stuff that's starting to work its way through. We've seen, obviously, consumer credit go high. We've seen savings rates come down a bit. We also know that student loans are going to start to get paid back in the not-so-distant future here. Maybe this really is a period where we start to see the effects on a consumer that has really been buoyed for multiple years, despite some very interesting dynamics as it relates to employment and the like here. That one was really interesting to me. Guys, we talked about the yield curve re-steepening. We talked about valuations in the equity market. There we are. We talked about some of the biggest leaders starting to break down technically. Did you see some of the price action in some of these like new meme stocks? Tupperware last week, Yellow that filed, uh, the trucking company that filed for bankruptcy. You saw the week that it had. When you think about some of the behavior, Rite Aid is another one, and some of these names and what retail investors are moving towards at a time where rotations are only exciting enough for a lot of retail investors, especially when you start seeing, there was a story I think we talked about on the pod last week where hedge funds are degrossing, okay? They're taking down longs and shorts, right? You have that situation where if people don't see a clear path forward, or at least, you know, what we want to say, institutional players, they start to degross, especially after the gains that we've seen in the stock market. The S&P is up nearly 17% year to date. It is a few percent off its highs. The NASDAQ up 40% of the years. And then you have retail traders reaching for that stuff. That tells me a lack of conviction. And that's not a good place when we had a VIX at 13 just a week ago, and now it's at 17 big fan of Tupperware. Okay. Not the stock, but just Tupperware in general. It's one of those companies that then became, like you say, can I have a Kleenex? Kleenex is a brand. Ah, it's not the actual. Like, you know, like, oh, let's play this game. Elizabeth, let's play this game. Did you know a Q-tip, <laughs> not a Q-tip, it's a cotton it's swab. A cotton swab. Jello right. is not Jello, it's gelatin. Band-Aid, right. for example... It's not a band. It's an adhesive strip. So I love what you did there. By the way, uh -huh. there's a great All in the Family episode where Edith Bunker has a Tupperware party and she practices her pitch. Anyway, back to you, please. I've made friends Wait, at Tupperware parties. That's like such a Wisconsin thing, such a Midwest thing to go to Tupperware parties and ooh and ah over the different colored tops. Look, to, in, in all seriousness, the fact that Tupperware is a stock that we're talking about right now. It's like one of the oldest companies, one of the oldest stocks, and they haven't changed their products in I don't know how long. This is obviously not something where it's, oh, the fundamental picture of Tupperware is now way more attractive than it was two months ago. 
the idea that there are new meme stocks or that meme stocks still exist at all and they're getting excitement for no real fundamental reason. This is one of those things, much like the HELOC thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Guys, we know how this movie ends, right? We have seen this before. We know how the meme stock thing went the first time. I don't know why it's not raising more flags or there aren't more people talking about the fact that some of these companies are having price action like they are without really any fundamental basis. I think it is just another indication of exuberance, of turning a blind eye to valuations and not paying enough close attention to the fundamental story behind it as a long-term investment. Carvana in there, the move off the lows. I mean, granted, where it was historically to where it is now, it's still a significant decline. But the bounce we've seen off the low is mind-boggling. And this is a term I think we started in earnest on Fast Money or maybe one of our shows. But again, the gamification of the stock market never really died. Maybe it slept for a little while, but it's back in spades. And to your point, Liz, that typically doesn't end particularly well. And I understand if you're making money hand over fist, being able to game out GameStop and Carvana and Tupperware and Yellow and all these, that's fantastic. But just understand That's got nothing to do with where the economy is or where the stock market should be in terms of valuations and in terms of just understanding metrics that are out there. Upstart at the end of 2021 traded $400 and it traded as low like in the la- this year as like $11 and it traded from 11 to 70. And if you figured out how to make money in that, whether you're using maybe zero days to expiration options or maybe you're YOLOing a, a, a thousand shares or this or whatever, and you're having those gains, that, that makes sense. But there's just understand there's no fundamental reason. And the reason I bring all of this up is that when you see these sorts of short squeezes in companies that business models have been proven to be just not particularly worthy and these stocks should not be publicly traded companies and they're contemplating bankruptcy you know and all that sort of stuff and you want to take them up three thousand percent that's fine have at it it's not a game that we play but understand that if all things being equal these stocks are going to rest on their fundamental laurels they're going to go way back down the likelihood that these companies are going to be able to reorganize their businesses and become better companies that are going to be investable securities is probably not likely and if it is the case you probably want to be in the debt not the equity. Guys, we're pretty much through Q2 earnings season. I think we've talked about it at nauseum over the last few weeks. We had lowered bars. We're still going to see earnings that are down year over year. There were lots of calls that the earnings recession is going to be over at some point in the back half of the year. But guys, we still have some, what I think are some important companies to report this week. I'll start with UPS. They averted that strike. They report tomorrow before the opening. The implied move, I think, is about 5% um, in either direction. Anything there that you think you can glean from, again, I think inflationary inputs are really important ones. Wages are are really important ones. Global demand for their products, I think is important, not just domestic demand and and the like here. Anything that you're thinking about in UPS that could be helpful in trying to figure out where the market is going, or at least the rotations into some of these cyclicals and transport names. I think that's right to look at them as some sort of indicators to the economy, the health of the consumer and those types of things. The fact that you said they're able to avert strikes, but think about that, and I don't want to get off the rails, I'll come back to UPS in a second, but you know, we talk about wage inflation. Think about all the strikes that are out there and the number of workers that are on strike and what their demands are. And as I'm sure everybody realizes, typically demands come down to just pay me more. And you're seeing it with United Auto Workers as well, looking for the headline numbers of 40% increase. And this is now across a swath of industries, and I think it's going to continue which again speaks to the difficult job that the Fed is having, number one. Number two, UPS, if you looked at it, you'd think it's a stock that's done really well over the last few years. 
I mean, as we sit here at $181 stock, we're effectively at the same price we were, I want to say, in December of 2020. So we've had moves ups and down, but basically we've gotten nowhere over the last three and a half years. That's something that Carter brings up all the time. Some people will say it's been building a base for the next leg higher. I would understand that. Other people would say, you know what? It hasn't been able to perform on what's been a pretty decent tape. And you do have since, I want to say, February of 22, a series of lower highs and lower lows. And I unfortunately think that trend might continue. All right, Liz, here's one. And, and maybe you can shed some light on this. Disney reports Wednesday after the close, the implied move 5% in either direction. The stock is basically unchanged on the year. It's down nearly 60% from its all-time highs a few years ago. Now, we played a little game on Fast Money last week, which you were not on. We'd love to see Liz on Fast Money some night. Wouldn't that be fun? Well, guy she, with she us has there? other shows that she frequents. Yes, prioritizes. That's fine. That's she fine. Goes, but but you know, at least, she, she we, we, you she know what, guy? spends time with the... We get her on Mondays. We get her on Mondays and on the tape, and we get her on Thursdays on market call. Yeah. So, Liz, help me with this one, okay? Nike is basically down on the year, down 5%. Starbucks, okay, like down flattish on the year. What's wrong with these kind of, let's call them high-end consumer discretionary names? Why are they not participating in a market that seems, it's like we've just gone through this. Rising tides have lifted all boats in 2023. And I'm just curious, is there something, is there a common thread between these three names as you think about, let's say, consumer discretionary here in the US? They're all kind of stuff, right? They make stuff, they require consumers to buy stuff. I think that consumers have successfully shifted into the experiences category and kind of stayed spending their money in experiences and services. Also, none of those companies are on the hot themes right now. They're not on an AI theme. They're not around that enthusiasm. And if you look at just what's driven the market up, it's been some of that growthy stuff. But that growthy driver is now over and we rotated into cyclicals. And I don't think these fall into that camp either. Also, some of these names, Nike, I would put in this category, but consumer discretionary names that are stuff related. And even you talked about Disney, streamers, that sort of thing. So much enthusiasm during COVID and even just post COVID in the reopening, we're past that phase of the cycle. So now companies have to settle back into a pretty normal level of consumer behavior. And again, back to our point earlier in the show, you can't pass through these prices anymore. Consumers aren't dumb. We're not going to go and pay more just because a company decides that they want to raise their prices. We all know that inflation is coming down. We all know that the input costs aren't as high as they were. So if you're going to charge me another 20% for a pair of shoes, I'm probably not going to pay it. So I think there is going to be pressure on earnings because of that. Consumers have warmed up to the idea that they shouldn't have to pay as high of prices anymore. The market just opened. It's Monday morning. Uh, headline, Tesla CFO, Kirk Horn, Zach Kirk Horn, he's been there for 13 years. He's long thought to be, I think, a very steady hand there. There's been, obviously, over the years, lots of rotation in the executive suite there. They're elevating a person who is, I guess, the chief accounting officer. Stock's down 1%-ish on that. Any thoughts there, Guy? People are allowed to leave companies. They've, they've, if you think about this guy as a CFO, has presided over one of the, like, the quickest <laughs> wealth creation vehicles the planet has ever seen, which which has been Tesla and their move towards a trillion dollars in market cap. Now, obviously, it lost 75% of that off its highs in 2021, but it's come back a great deal here. I do think it's interesting that the knee-jerk reaction is to sell the stock, and now it has an $800 billion market cap company. Thoughts there, Guy? I don't know if it was anticipated. I don't follow it that closely. And again, as you said, people are allowed to leave positions. There's no law against that. But typically, when you see, especially for some reason, when CFOs leave companies, the warning signs always seem to go out and they flash red. So 
let's put it this way. It's not a positive for sure. And I guess why, at least for now, the stock's down a percent or so. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting if they had hired somebody from outside the company from a very reputable sort of firm. I think that probably would have been something, in my opinion, a vote of confidence in you know in their management as far as somebody coming from the outside and taking over the reins. But I also get what it means to have somebody internally who's very familiar with the processes and the like here. We got a lot going on this week, people. Liz Young, we really appreciate you being here with Guy and me early on a Monday morning. Guy Dami, thanks a lot. Guys, stick around for our conversation with Edward Talmer Guerra of New Vest. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. And we're excited to have Edward Talmor Guerra, founder and CEO of NuVest, with us today. Edward, how are you? Mm, really excited to be here. Thank you. What we like to do typically, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of what you have going on, but we'd love to hear sort of your background, your story, and how NuVest came to pass. I usually start by introducing myself. I think I married into private equity. I did an MBA about 15 years ago at the London Business School, and there was some professor there that I got close to and was my supervisor. And I do stress that I first got my grades and only then did he introduce me to his daughter. And around the world, people are quite familiar, I think, with his name, Professor Eli Talmor, one of the preeminent professors of private equity, he wrote all of the books that are taught to business schools around the world about private equity, and basically took me under his wing, introduced me to his daughter that I did marry. And, and that's how I say I married into private equity. So I got into private equity really through, through that sort of quasi-academic side of things, where I started off as being his assistant and with the teaching and marking of grades and so forth. And, and it grew over time and became the private equity industry coach at LBS helping teach the private equity masterclass a few times a year. 
And then there was uh, some publication of books and research, and one side of my private equity background grew. So it sounds like this was during the financial crisis, and that seemed like a probably a good time to be getting uh, an MBA or an advanced degree in finance. What was it about private equity in that moment that really interested you? Because again, we had just gone through this very dramatic period in global financial markets and almost every risk asset, and it was really at the precipice, though. When you think about it, like I was reading an article in the FT this morning, it was talking about Blackstone, it was talking about it first listed, I think, in 07, 08, around the same time on the NYSE. Since then, their assets are up like 15-fold. They just topped $1 trillion. It seemed to be a moment in time where private equity was really going to inflect. If I have to sum it up in, in, in a word, it's a bit more than a word. You know, really, private equity was you know, everything that I was hoping to get out of an MBA. It is business. It is everything about business that's so exciting. It's about finance and strategy and marketing. And you have every aspect of business, everything you want to have across an MBA coming through private equity. So just being involved in private equity gave that massively exciting window into everything which is business. And I love that. Seems as though private equity is probably coming to the forefront now, given what's happened with bank regulation coming down, interest rates, bond market, valuations are concerned. My sense is, and please correct me or amplify this, you're probably at the precipice of like a new sort of golden age here for private equity. Is, is there something to that? I think that private equity, and, and we say private equity, and I say private equity, we're really referring to private capital. So it's across also private debt and infrastructure and, and real estate. At the end of the day, even way back then, academically, we're trying to think about private equity not being an asset class, but being a governance model. And it's a better governance model for investing into businesses. And so I think there's going to be a natural evolution of that industry of funds, of the Blackstones of the world. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that this last week was a milestone with having Blackstone crossed the one trillion mark of assets under management. But I think that market opportunities are going to shift over time and there will be always really interesting opportunities for investments. And these managers are, are going to be very well positioned to have very smart people, really well aligned with their interests to find the market opportunities to invest into businesses, into credit, into real estate, into infrastructure, to then drive growth and value creation and, and realize those investments. So I think that I truly believe that the world of private capital is going to continue growing substantially. And what we're coming and doing is simply helping the evolution of the industry of funds and the way of getting access as investors to these opportunities of investing with these private equity funds, that's where we're coming in and helping evolve the market. All right. So give us a sense for NuVest. What is your model? And what, again, you just laid out what you think the opportunity is and where the industry is going here. What was the opportunity that you saw to form NuVest? And, and how are you, let's say, differentiated from some other models? Because I, I really do think it's interesting. The whole idea of passive investing in private equity is not something that Guy and I or some of our contemporaries who've been so obsessed in our whole career with public markets have had a lot of exposure to, but the access to these sorts of products, it sounds like your company and what you're trying to do is just make them a bit more accessible to a whole host of different investors. In the public securities world, you have active management through mutual funds and hedge funds, and you have the passive index funds, which we've all seen started 40-something years ago over the last 20 years have grown phenomenally and are now more than 50% of public securities held through those passive instruments. In my world of private markets, you've had, and I've been involved with and teaching and, and, and got a business involved in that side of things around active stock picking, which is the equivalent in our world of actively selecting a single fund, which fund to invest in. Do I want to invest in, in a Blackstone, into an Insight, into a TPG? How do I choose which fund I want to invest in? That active is the equivalent of stock picking. 
you also have in private markets the equivalent of mutual funds and hedge funds through funds of funds and secondary funds. But you've never had until now an option to do a passive allocation. That low-cost passive exposure was just never available in private equity and private capital. And we were the first to create such a solution. So talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. What is the wrapper? You know what I mean? And what is the process that you're going through evaluating just the different funds to put in your passive investing index structure here? And how should investors think about that is in like holistically as an allocation within their own portfolio? And I'm assuming, obviously, this is heavily put in the bucket of alternative investment. There's three different questions in there. Yeah. So. I'll start with the first. So how, how does it work? Very simple, really. Very much like your S&P 500 or a FTSE 100. The idea is we create what is an index, mm -hmm. and then we have to build also an investable index tracker. So our product is an investable product. It's structured as a fund of fund. We say we're disrupting the fund of fund space. So only from a legal structuring point of view, we're like a fund of fund. We're quite different in many other ways. Legally structured, you've got a fund of fund, but then you have first and foremost, a business model that is disruptive in that we do not charge any management fees. We charge only a very slim carry and it's back-end European waterfall, what we call. So it's a very strongly aligned economic interest with our investors, with the investors who are investing through us. We never get any kind of platform fee or placement fee from the GPs. And we don't tell those funds to give us free co-investments and put it into some other product on which we will earn money from. So that's our business model. In terms of the investment strategy being passive, what that means is we look to invest in the largest funds in a particular strategy asset class and what we call a vintage period. So the moment we have our first two products now available, one is for private equity, the second is for private debt. The private equity effectively is giving exposure to 50 of the largest funds currently fundraising in the market. Those 50 funds in aggregate are targeting a fundraise of more than half a trillion dollars in the current market of private equity funds. They make up well over 70% of the entire industry, the entire market of funds currently raising. So if you invest with us, you're effectively getting exposure to more than 70% of the market, capital-weighted, and that will eventually gravitate to the pooled return, to the weighted average return, just like a S&P 500 would do. So it's a market-weighted structuring of the product. That's how we create an investable product, which is passively constructed with a very low-cost offering with no management fees to institutions. Let me ask you sort of not a theoretical question, but something that I struggle with and think about, and Dan sort of alluded to it. I understand passive investing in the equity market. I understand now it's making its way into other asset classes or other industries. Is there a concern that passive money basically elevates valuations? You know, with passive money, money just flowing into things regardless, there's a sense, and I believe this in the equity market, that valuations are probably stretched on the back of this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Two thoughts, which are sort of contradictory to one another. We can make one case and say that in the public market, and again, you helped me here with getting the data right, that became a question only in, re in recent times. People have asked academically, when does the passive model break down? Is it when it becomes, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the market has been done through passive? At some point, it'll have to break down. Of course, everyone knows it can't be 100% through passive. There has to be some price setting for active management. So at which point does it break down? When you get to levels which are over 50%, people started asking the question. So if I bring that to my private market world, if you think that this year in private markets, you have approximately a trillion dollars being raised across private equity, private debt, infrastructure, and so forth, to get to a level where the question around whether our kind of a solution of a passive will influence things means we'll have to be raising more than half a trillion dollars a year mm -hmm. to be more than 50%. Clearly, there's a bit of a way to go till that becomes a potential question. 
I'm not answering it, but saying it will be potentially a question to be answered over the next five to 10 years when we truly create a a multi-trillion dollar industry of passively investing in private markets. That's not going to happen overnight. The other part of the answer, which is contradictory to say, I don't think it will really influence, which is that at the end of the day, you have market, which is determining price and its capital flows. When it comes to private equity, you're still going to have a manager who is incentivized to make good investments, not only to earn its profit share, its carry, but also to be able to continue growing its business and raising its subsequent fund for which they need to make good investments. And that's going to be measured by returns. And if they've overpaid, they will be penalized. Private equity is very clean and tidy. There's no hiding it. Eventually, you have to make the realization on those investments. And if you pay too much to going in, then you're not going to make a good return. So Guy, I think, is also alluding to something that in the public markets, because so much money has just moved into passive, is that like the idea, and I think Guy has said this kind of aptly on many occasions, is like when we have these periods of just where correlations go to one, that passive really does become active, right? And a lot of it has to do with the the liquidity of a lot of these massive funds, right, that have just seen these crazy inflows in periods where people are just set it and forget it. But then when we have these dislocations in the markets, we have exasperated sort of periods of volatility to the downside. So get, help us think about a little bit about in the private markets that you guys, obviously there's lockups on these funds, right? It, they don't have the sort of liquidity. And so are they not likely to have that sort of volatility because they just have to take a longer term time horizon? The kind of products we're creating and the platform we've got it's all within that private market where there isn't that consideration altogether, really. That's not really a factor. The thing we say about actually for investors who are coming to invest through us, we'll be reducing the volatility in, and its volatility of returns and it's the volatility of the profile of cash flows of when they're being drawn over time and when they're being distributed over time because you're getting that highly diversified portfolio. So that, that I think is something that happens in public markets is not to be expected in private markets, not to be confused with publicly listed kind of structures that are creating synthetic liquidity as a promise of vehicles that are sitting on top of illiquid markets. And we've seen you mentioned Blackstone a few times already, so we can mention them again. We saw the drying up of liquidity on something which had a promise of liquidity and the challenges of trying to create a liquid solution over an illiquid asset class. That's not what we're doing. Our passive index is not meant to be a liquid product. It's still a illiquid closed-end private capital structured product, what we're coming and doing is allowing investors to come in and simply having an alternative to saying, I want to choose a single fund or pay uh, an expensive extra layer of fees for a, a degree of diversification for a fund to fund. We're giving even more diversification, buying even more exposure with much less cost. And it's just simply a way to have an easier, lower cost, lower risk way of getting exposure to private equity. And and it's the same concept as in the public markets here is that you don't have that idiosyncratic risk of investing in one fund that has a very specific liquidity. You're spreading it out amongst lots of funds. You take a very quantitative approach, I'm assuming, to the way you construct these sorts of portfolios. Give us a sense for that. And then also what sort of investors are really interested in this sort of product right now? I've often been quoting different people from the CIO of one of the largest pension funds from Japan and some of the Canadians as well, who often talked about alternatives not being alternative, but private equity is not being alternative. Private equity being the main thing they want to be investing their equity exposure into. And the alternative, so long as the capital hasn't been called, is parked elsewhere, maybe in public equities, very often in, in passive index products, until the capital has been called by the private equity funds that they chose to invest with. So I think that the tying that into your question now, individual investors, just like small institutions and large institutions, are appreciating more and more that there is a lot of value in allocating in their portfolio overall 
a portion to private markets, to private equity, to private debt, private infrastructure, etc. And so I think that allocated to private equity is something which there has been done by institutions, has been done by some individuals, but there are still many who have not even started really investing or have only been very nascent investors into the asset class. Anybody who comes in, even if it's a, a large LP with a big team of private equity individuals focused on the asset class, knows that there are challenges in, in getting the exposure. There is a lot of cost. There is a lot of administrative burden. There is a lot of, as you say, idiosyncratic risk mm-hmm. of picking the wrong you know, particular fund to invest with. That's also where there is massive alpha opportunity, which absolutely we believe in. And so one has to build a strategy of how to get the portfolio of exposure of private capital. And our tool comes in to be a tool of efficiency, where if you are a very small investor and you have no team and everything else, this is your one-stop shop. This is your one place to say, okay, I'm buying a Nuvest Index product and that's giving me exposure to private equity, to private debt and so forth, and you can sleep well at night. If you are a team with a sophisticated capability of sourcing and finding high conviction, alpha generating strategies in private markets, then the offering is to use this, just like in public markets, as a core satellite approach for more of an optimal portfolio construction. You anchor your portfolio with just buying the beta of buying the sort of broad exposure, very low cost efficiently, and then spend your limited resources to find the positions where you can have that high conviction and make the concentrated bet on a single fund or on a fund that's going to give you co-investments or in a niche area of the market that you want to focus on, whatever is the strategy you believe you can generate the most amount of alpha in, terrific. But you anchor that with a passive index and, and augment that with a satellite high conviction approach, and you'll find that your portfolio has a more optimal construction from a risk return perspective. Warren Buffett said, a low-cost fund is the most sensible equity investment to the majority of investors. You sound like a student of history to me, and it seems like this is a democratization of markets specifically in this vertical and private equity, which by the way, over the last 20 or so years has probably outperformed the, the public markets by two or threefold. I understand the past performance is no indication of what's going to happen, but how long do you think this outperformance at, at any level can continue in your world? We, we've done quite a bit of analysis and, and we looked at historic private equity return figures. The typical things people talk about in private equity are on a vintage by vintage basis. What are the returns of a vintage year of funds. So meaning funds that were established in 2007 or funds that were established in 2012, what were the returns that those funds made? And and looking at it statistically, we can say what is the median rate of return, a top quartile level of return, and what is the pooled return, which is the weighted average of all the funds in a particular vintage year. And, And then what we found is when we analyzed it and we said, okay, when investors are in allocating to private equity and they have a team that's trying to invest and you may be using consultants and advisors to advise on those selections. And if you think of a fund of fund, then inherently they are an investor. They are putting a portfolio of funds that they're selecting. And what we found is something which is, we have to be a little bit careful. It's easy here on the radio, so I've got, I'll tell everybody, I'm wearing a bulletproof vest, so now I'll tell you the data we found. And, and what we found is if we looked at all the US public pension system that has amazingly transparent information. And you know, over a particular year, US public pension fund returns of private equity, very similar to the return profile of fund of funds that we had data for as well. In a particular year, some of those investors in their portfolio managed to outperform the pooled return. Most of them talk about whether or not they outperformed the median return, which obviously not all of them did, and certainly some did. But what we found is that the pooled return, the weighted average return, has a substantial premium over that median level of return. And so even fewer investors manage to outperform the pooled return, but some do. If we look at fund of funds, it's roughly one in five net of fees do beat the pooled return. However, just like the Warren Buffett bet in public markets, 
doing so consistently over time, vintage year after vintage year, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And actually, we didn't find a single funder fund that over a 20-year period managed to sort of outperform that pool return. We don't have data on everybody, but those that we have data on did not. We often talk about those that are publicly listed, publicly available data. So Hamilton Lane, for example, one of the biggest consultants and gatekeepers and fund of fund managers in the private market space. And from the publicly available data that we have about them, their returns net of their fees in their flagship primary fund of fund program hasn't once beaten the pooled return, which is statistically quite an anomaly of itself because they've been doing so for 20-something years. You know, th their returns over 20-something years had a substantial negative alpha relative to if you would have had the option to invest simply in the pool return. U.S. public pension funds, we had a similar finding. We, there was one, actually, that over the last 10 years did manage to seemingly consistently beat, but the majority didn't. The vast majority mm -hmm. did not. It's, it's a combination of passive and active. The private equity industry is an industry of actively management investment. So Blackstone and, and all the others are, are very active managers, and they're generating potentially great alpha. And the, the sort of typical appropriate measurement of what is the alpha they're generating is comparing it, as you said, to the public equity markets, but the relevant equity market that's comparing to what they're investing in if it's a private equity firm. And if it's a private debt firm, you would look at sort of public yields and so on that you'd compare to. But the, our idea is to sort of at the level of the allocators, the investors, the LPs into private equity funds, how do we look at creating a passive allocation there? And then it becomes a passive overactive that gets you to the to the optimal offering. Let, yes. Let's talk a little bit about private credit. We've had some guests on this year. It seems like something that's become pretty popular at the moment here. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, just the interest rate environment, what we saw, at least here in the U.S., as far as regional banks and, and some of the ones that went under and the place in which they played in the private credit market here. It seems to be a lot of folks are getting very focused on this area right now. And when you think about, we just spent a lot of time talking about private equity. How is private credit, how is this working into your thought process at NuVest? And, and do you see this as something that is just because of the disruption that we've seen here in, in some of the bigger players, or is this here to stay and something that you guys are spending a lot more time thinking about? I definitely think it's here to stay. I think it's a very exciting sub-asset class that has grown tremendously thanks to very much regulatory changes that happened, starting with here in the US, but also in Europe. And so you have today private uh, direct lenders, which is the, ma the vast majority of the asset class of private debt you know, in terms of the dollars that are being deployed there, you know, are a form of substitution to what banks were doing before, providing l leverage to LBOs and to corporates sponsor-backed, non-sponsor-backed, and so forth. And so I think that is a very interesting growth area because you're seeing very sophisticated managers of credit that are creating a better governance model of alignment and transparency to investors. And so I think it's definitely here to stay. I was on a panel a while ago, and about a couple of months ago, and was asked talking about transparency in the, in the industry, which I thought was very, very good, especially around private debt. So the comparison that is not trivial, people say, oh, for, oh private equity and private debt, it's not transparent, and that's a negative. But I would actually make a case that it's more transparent. If you are an investor today and you want to buy exposure to credit, you go to invest in an equity of a bank, hoping that they will give out good loans. Can you ask the bank, tell me who are your loan officers? Tell us about the loss ratio of each individual one. Who are the companies that have taken your loans and what has been their track record performance with you, et cetera? And are they repeat business? And all these kind of questions that you'd want to ask to get a true deep diligence. In the world of private debt, you can absolutely get answers to those questions and know exactly how and who you're investing with. In the case of a bank, you can't. And so I actually would make an academic case that private debt is a more transparent way to invest into underlying credit. The governance model 
of a private debt manager is better than a, a banking governance model or a, an investor that wants to get that exposure. And then we come into the story and say, okay, now you have a lot of emerging, fast-growing private debt funds. You can choose to invest in one of them, or you can choose to invest in an index of many of them, mm -hmm. the 50 largest. Our index of the 50 largest will capture more than 80% of the entire asset class of private debt, of which 80% roughly is direct lending. And inherently, when you're investing in credit, it's about managing risk. So the, the returns, the expected returns from our index is the weighted average expected returns of the underlying remains the same expected return. But you're reducing the risk substantially by buying all that extra diversification in a very efficient way. So the historic pooled return of private debt had less than a 2% standard deviation. And compare that to single private debt fund selection, which had 11% standard deviation. If you could think of a theoretical sharp ratio, which doesn't exist, nobody's ever assessed sharp ratios in private markets, but a kind of a theoretical equivalent to a sharp ratio in private markets, investing in, in our indices is giving you anywhere between four and six times the sharp ratio relative to investing in a single private equity fund or a single private debt fund. And so summing it up, I think private debt is a very interesting asset class. We have a private debt index, which is reducing the risk substantially, mm -hmm. giving you very broad exposure to private debt. Most of it is the sort of senior direct lending. Some of it is the more higher octane subordinated credit, special SITS type credit with an overall expected return, which is very attractive relative to the risk where, where we see in it. What you do is extraordinarily granular, and I get it. Dan and I look at markets, and we probably could tell you each tick in the S&P 500 over the last couple of years. That's not your world. But my question to you is, what do you think of the landscape right now, just the environment overall? Because we talk about all the cross currents. Maybe we get too uh, bogged down in things. But from your vantage point, what do you think about the economic investing world now? I, I'm definitely out of my league to answer that. But what I would say is that the beauty of what we do is that we very simply get to have all of these incredible managers. If you look down the list of who we're investing into this year that's available in the private equity and in the private debt space, Blackstone, TPG, Bain, Insight, Golub Capital, those leading private debt managers, the leading private equity managers, and all of their huge army of amazingly smart, smartest investors around the world spread globally, they are actually now positioned, incentivized, and aligned with us to go out into this market over the next several years, not take an instant one-moment bet today, but over the investment period of the next three, four years, hunt for the very best deals, find and execute on them, then have all of the power that they bring through their scale to add tremendous value add and improve those investment opportunities, those deals, to get to the point of realizing them with the best possible returns. And, and I can sort of sleep well at night. I've got all of them out there working for us in the most efficient way. So again, I, I have no way to tell you where I think the outside opportunity is. The beauty of what I'm doing being passive is that I don't have to make that assessment and then be assessed whether I was right in it or wrong. I am sure, and I am with the highest level of conviction, that private markets will continue to have a real alpha outperformance relative to public markets. And I appreciate the audience I'm sitting in front of here. So I, I know that's a bit of, a, of a, a statement to make, but I do truly believe that the private market will have a continued alpha over public markets. And what we're doing is simply allowing investors to buy into that in the most efficient, lowest risk, lowest cost way. Edward, before we wrap, uh, maybe you could tell us about some of the future products uh, you're thinking about or talking about at NuVest. Absolutely. Very excited about what's to come. I mean, we're still early days in our journeys. There, there are two avenues. First is additional products in terms of asset classes we want to get exposure to. So like in public markets where you have, I don't know, five new ETFs a week being published, we also hope to create additional products. So we started with our private equity and private debt that we call our core products. We're about to launch our next first niche index product, which is going to be an index of the energy transition, green climate focused private equity funds. So that's a very hot topic at the moment. I think very exciting, really important 
to have ways to invest into that energy transition need. And our index provides exposure to, again, 70-80% of that entire market of funds that are being raised. I hope also to launch a tech-focused VC-like index. I hope to launch a real estate and core infrastructure. And eventually also we'll be able to launch mid-market funds and smaller funds, like you have a FTSE 100 and a FTSE 250. Really important, I would say, we're also going to launch soon an impact fund, which is focused on the impact investing funds. We'll have achieved our goals when we are successful in launching a index of first-time fund managers. That's the ultimate goal. Clearly going to be a while till people appreciate the risk return profile there, which is much greater. But I think that will be a great moment of personal achievement once we've got that index up and running. The second avenue, just to wrap it up, is I think there are going to be many businesses out there in the fintech space that are creating really interesting new business models, new technology, new solutions for legal regulatory requirements to distribute private equity funds, private capital funds. Currently, they're all being developed with the premise of some kind of adverse fund selection of a single fund being put on those platforms and bridged to that last mile distribution for retailization. I hope that we'll be able to partner with many of those and give what they're doing in that last mile distribution to retail exposure to the much more safe, lower risk, more diversified exposure. The beat of the markets by them doing that last mile on top of our index products. I think that all of our listeners and, and Guy and myself included, we're always looking for ways to diversify away from the thing that we know best, the thing that we get locked into. And I think your description of what you've been able to create at NuVest and, and what your vision for that platform is, I think is very interesting. I think a lot of investors are going to find this space increasingly interesting, especially in a year like this, when we saw so much volatility in the public markets in a short period of time. It really, I think, pushed some eyes onto the products that you're most focused on here. And if you are able to demonstrate the alpha that you speak of and that exists in the data that you have, I think it's going to be an increasingly important platform. You can find Edward Tal Morgera, he is the managing partner and CEO of NuVest at NuVest.com. So we appreciate you being with us on the pod here today. Thank you very much for having me. Really exciting, really a privilege, and I look forward to more. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.